there, partners, and welcome to Rising. We've got another edition of our show for you today. Happy to be here. How about you, Brianna? Robbie, what are you up to? Have you been listening to the Beyonce album? <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> no, uh, it just is what came to mind. I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, let me giddy up to the news now. <laughs> the Supreme Court has decided it will take up the issue of whether former President Donald Trump can claim presidential immunity in Jack Smith's prosecution of Trump's alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The justice's order puts proceedings in that trial on hold, further throwing into doubt whether the case will go to jury before election night in November. MSNBC host Chris Hayes said the court's decision was part of a conspiracy to keep Trump on the ballot and out of the courtroom in 2024. Let's watch. It is an unmistakable sign from the MAGA majority of the Trump-created court that they are with him that they are going to use their power to make sure he does not face trial in an election year for attempting to end American democracy. Also of note, just yesterday, a judge in Illinois removed the former president from its state's ballot under the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause, making it the third state to do so after the Colorado Supreme Court's precedent setting ruling last year. Okay, so we talked about this um, earlier when the lower court uh, hearing came out, talking about the fact that if the Supreme Court did take it up, it could have a variety of effects on the timing of the trial. There was a sort of best-case scenario for the Democrats' version of events where it could still proceed pretty relatively quickly and have a chance of coming to some conclusion before Election Day, or a worst-case scenario where there was no possibility, given the scheduling that could possibly be before the court. And it does seem like there's still an opportunity here from the Democrats' perspective to have this trial happen before Election Day. But the problem is, is it going to end up being an October surprise? Is it going to end up being too late in the game to really affect voters' decisions? Right. I mean, look, the, the process from a legal standpoint just has to play out along its own timeline. The, the Supreme Court has scheduled this basically as quickly as they possibly can, given that they are going to take it up. What Chris Hayes and other liberals I was seeing on social media are really mad about is that they decided to weigh in on this at all, yeah. and rather than just letting the lower court ruling stand and suggesting that this is an effort to delay the trial so that it takes place after the election. Okay, look, Supreme Court justices are political actors, so I can't rule out that that's part of their calculation. But on some level, I mean, this is a pretty fundamental question, whether the, the person who occupies the office of the executive branch enjoys this kind of a, a vast immunity. Um, I don't think anyone should hold that kind of, anyone in elected office should have that immunity from prosecution. We want our, not just Trump, but all political figures to be held to account, they, to be, when they, when they misuse the powers of their office. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's not on its face ridiculous that the Supreme Court is going to consider this question, even though it does have the effect of potentially delaying the trial beyond the election day. Well, sure, but remember, the Supreme Court takes up a very small number of cases yeah. every year. It certainly is not the case that every broadly um, relevant issue is taken up by the Supreme Court. And remember, this was decided by the D.C. Circuit Court in a unanimous decision that legal experts across the political spectrum evaluated as very conclusive. I don't think any even Republicans at this point or any point, really, were arguing that there's any merit to D Donald Trump's claims here. Remember, what he's claiming is that basically he is broadly immune from anything because he's the president of the United States of America. It goes fundamentally to the core of what it means for us to be a, a country and a constitutional republic, a democratic republic. So this isn't really about the merits needing to be decided by the, the upper court. And I do think there's a very strong case that this is a political decision. But framing it as a conspiracy in the way Democrats have done, it's a little bit of a, of a mixed bag, because here's, here's the problem. 
It is fine to believe that the Supreme Court is a political institution. Very few people at this point, I think, would argue that it's not. Republicans have been arguing for years against activist judges in the other direction. And now we have activist judges who are conservative in nature that are overwhelmingly um, influencing the Supreme Court decisions right now. That being said, the Biden administration in particular, and establishment Democrats more generally, have been very skeptical, very hesitant to do anything serious about Supreme Court reform. So it kind of feels like, what are you really complaining about? You understand this is a political institution, and what you're really complaining about right now is that you lost the grips on this particular ability to advance your political efforts through the courts. And Republicans are just in the, in the, in the, in the advantage seat right now. And it's now. political both ways. An another state, Illinois, has decided to take Trump's name yeah. off the ballot. That's a, a, a legal d decision. Um, is that not political? Is, is that not some effort to make it less likely Trump can win the election? Um, and, and that's not up to. And also, I think the thrust of like the Chris Hayes criticism, some others. Obviously, they're concerned that if the election takes place or the uh, the prosecution of Trump takes the, the trial takes place after election day, it's just not going to happen because he'll be able to use if he wins the election, he could use the powers um, of that he assumes as president to make. Some of these things go away, not the Georgia case, but perhaps the uh, the, the federal case, the Jack Smith case. Um, but it, they're also mad because they think if it happens before Election Day, that could change the results of the election if he's convicted. And a, a, like a lot of people are making that assertion that resolving Trump's legal issues before the election will be bad for him if he's convicted, and thus it's important to do that, which is an ex explicitly political rationale. Yeah. Also, a deeply unproven one, frankly. Um, look, th this guy has faced a lot of criminal. Like he's he's been found um, uh, liable for defamation against Eugene Carroll. He just had a ruling against him um, in New York with respect to his businesses. Yeah. He's faced. This is a controversial man whose controversies are known, and it, it ha has not like greatly impacted him. So it's certainly not impacted his support among Republicans. It doesn't, frankly, seem to be the kind of issues that keep independents even at bay. Um, now, could it damage him? Sure. Polls suggest that people have said that if he were convicted, that would maybe change their mind about whether they're going to vote for him. Yeah. But I, I don't know, man. It's it's a kind of untested theory. I, I think that's a good point. And if I were doing columns for Democrats, which I blessedly am not, I would be focused not so much on the outcome of the trial as having an effect. Because remember, the reason why, and this makes Democrats crazy, the reason why nothing seems to stick to Trump largely is because there's very different media environments. And Democrats have contributed to this, by the way, around the 1-6 messaging. People look at what happened on 1-6, they say Donald Trump was not responsible, this is a witch hunt, they're coming after him from freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera. Where the trial, I think, might start to peel some voters away from Trump is that it might excavate the nature of the fraud scheme in the weeks preceding January 6th. If that is true, and if that is my, which is my instinct, and if that is what actually will motivate some Trump voters, could motivate some Trump voters away from Trump, then that is something that could be excavated with or without the trial taking place. Democrats have had all of this time to focus their media and focus their messaging on the actual scheme as opposed to the fact of people rushing the Capitol building on the date of January 6th. And that might be a place they should pivot to now that we have substantial delays now in not only the Jack Smith case, but also the Georgia case because of the Fannie Willis debacle. Yeah, I think it speaks to a, a liberal fear that Biden just can't beat Trump in yeah. a head-to-head -head match unless there's some extraordinary, the extraordinary spectacle of a trial right before it. They, they, they feel like they need a Hail Mary because they're looking at the same polls we're looking at that show Joe Biden 
very capable of losing this election to Donald Trump, perhaps more likely to do so. Yeah, all right. Hoping for an October surprise. <laughs> Will they get it? Keep, keep with us. We'll let you know more about what's going on in the news right after this. Well, President Biden dominated the Michigan primary with overwhelming support, yet the 100,000 uncommitted votes won at least one of the state's delegates, according to Decision Desk HQ results, which is a blow to President Biden that reflects some deep unhappiness from certain parts of his party, especially over his handling of Israel's war in Gaza. Now, yesterday on The View, Whoopi Goldberg had a message for so-called one-issue voters in the Democratic Party. Let's watch. I understand you're upset. We talked about this yesterday. I understand you're upset, but, you know, either we're going to fix it together or we're not. And the other guy is not going to fix it at all. Meanwhile, former MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan made his return to CNN yesterday, where he told Jake Tapper the uncommitted tally is on Biden, not voters. I also think it's crazy that Joe Biden is willing to wreck his presidency, potentially, and American democracy if Trump gets back in for Benjamin Netanyahu, a man who has basically, I can't find the daytime language for it, done bad things to every Democratic president in my lifetime. Mm. All right, so the, there's been a full court press uh, by Democrats, um, liberal media pundits, to wave away the significance of what happened in Michigan earlier this week. And the argument that they make is to, in large part, to look back at um, other uncommitted ballot uh, lines in the past uh, that are similar in size or larger. Specifically, they like to talk about uh, what it looked like for Obama in 2008, but what they omit from that was that he wasn't on the ballot um, at that time because he specifically asked his supporters not to participate in a non-binding primary in uh, participate, and then in, in 2012, asked them not to participate in a non-binding primary. So it's a very misleading uh, accounting because those significant um, right. not uncommitted tallies are people who are expressing a preference for the leading candidate on the Democratic ticket in that race, not a effort to get them to vote against yes. the leading candidate in a Democratic race, not to mention the fact that it broadly ignores the very slim margins that have historically existed in Michigan and, frankly, in many states around the country in 2016 in particular. What, what was the total aggregate of votes 11, that Hillary 000. Clinton— 11,000 votes that Trump won by. Exactly. And, and Biden won by a lot more. Yeah. Um, a hundred thousand, more than a hundred thousand yeah, votes. Yeah, I think it was about a hundred, hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, hundred fifty thousand votes. So, hundred thousand uncommitted people choose not to. Again, it's not they're probably not going to vote for Trump. So, Whoopi's making, uh, she's making a pitch there that we have, you have to fear Trump. But um, it, it's again that line that the thing that's wrong with the Biden administration and Biden's policies is not him, but you. Right. What the problem is you that you're not right. supporting him full throatedly enough. And that just doesn't seem like a message that is going. Maybe there's someone in the country who responds to that. I don't know about the people in Michigan who are specifically upset um, that the uh, Muslim Arab voters, um, young people in college towns like my own college town, Ann Arbor. I don't think that's going to be a message that really resonates with them. You know, you know what's interesting <laughs> about that? I was listening to uh, Pods of America and actually Mehdi Hassan talking about this. And one of the Pods of America hosts, John Favreau, argued that he actually gave him some relief in terms of the Democrats' odds, Joe Biden's odds in the fall. That it wasn't as bad as he expected? In specifically college towns 
didn't have as bad an outcome for Joe Biden versus uncommitted as places like Dearborn with heavy Arab American population. And he anticipated, he said, well, I thought that young people would be leading the charge here. And I read that a little bit differently. Young people don't tend to come out and vote in primary elections. Yeah, uncommitted got, I think, 30% of the vote in uh, Ann Arbor, a little less than that in East Lansing, which is where Michigan State is. So there's an argument that when you have a general election, where there's a bigger percentage of the electorate that is young people that turns out, you might have different kinds of results. And frankly, there might be momentum behind the, this unexpected and unprecedented effort here. Remember, the goal of the uncommitted campaign in Michigan was just to get 10,000 votes. 10,000. They got 10x that. And it's worth noting that there are a number of other states that have uncommitted options. Um, about. 20 or so, Idaho, Montana, Michigan, Colorado, Iowa, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Tennessee, Hawaii, D.C., New Jersey. There are a lot of opportunities for people to come out and say, okay, you didn't think that was significant this time? Will you think it's significant if we continue to replicate these results all across the country, including in other states that are sensitive for Democrats, must win states where they have very narrow margins? Yeah. Uh, I know. It's, uh, it, it is something—I mean, it's something that Michael LaRosa, who is a former uh, Biden staff member, comms person for uh, both the president and the first lady, um, conceded yesterday that he is concerned about this, that he doesn't understand the media strategy behind the Biden campaign, that um, keeping him—keeping the press at bay is clearly not working. It's allowing everyone to— Speculate somewhat right. based on uh, what they see in these brief press conferences he does, the anecdotes he tells, where the concerns about his cognitive impairment come through. Uh, it, it could be in an interview that does he does even worse. But at this point, you got to try something because the polls just show him losing. So why he ha has decided on this strategy? Maybe because it sort of worked last time during COVID to hide in the basement and let Trump just. Seem, seem to many people, including, frankly, Republicans, that he was not handling COVID well and that he was kind of careening wildly from one agenda to the next or had even turned the whole thing over to advisors who Republicans increasingly didn't think very highly of. Whatever went wrong for the Trump campaign, it was more about his, his flaws or his failures toward the end of his presidency than about anything affirmatively Biden was doing. Sure. Biden just kind of suggested, don't look, if you vote for me, it'll be normal again. Right. And that worked. It did work. But also, remember this, the, the narrative about Biden being in the basement? It wasn't exactly the same as the narrative that's happening right now. Remember, no. at the time, the concern was because he was an older person right. and he, he was could, vulnerable to he COVID. Could die. Yeah. Not that he was kind of inherently frail yeah. or that there were these cognitive concerns that have emerged now. No, he was at, right. He's an at-risk age group right. for COVID, even he's, for healthy people right. at that age. Yeah. And he's a very different person than he was yeah. in 2020. I, there, of course, were these moments where people questioned his mental fitness, most notably at that one debate where um, uh, Castro called him out on it. Yeah. But generally speaking, it the was nothing like what we're seeing right now. And that on top of the news that there was a, a choice not to uh, do the cognitive fitness exam and this most recent um, uh, health test. That sparked a whole another cycle of articles and speculation about and so why Edward that Snowden pointed made. that out on uh, Twitter. I saw exactly. So this is this situation. The implication, whether or not you think it's fair, isn't going away for Joe Biden. De La Rosa, you know, we, we were talking to him yesterday, seemed to suggest, well, maybe he would fare better if he did more appearances, if he was out in public more, and that might be the case. But is that possible? Yeah. Is is it, does the Biden administration understand that they are disadvantaging the the their client their their principal by keeping him from the public? But that's a 
better outcome than if he were actually before the public I mean, making the frankly, kind of gaffe he's been if making. if their position is actually that he would be doing even worse if he was in front of the public more, then they should find another candidate. There just needs to be a different it's, candidate. It's hard to get around, to that, about the, around the conclusion. Now, to the extent that it's still a close race and the issue yeah. of his handling of Gaza is what could potentially make the difference for him, it's worth noting that the Biden administration seems to be going forward with this narrative that says, we're trying for a ceasefire, a ceasefire is coming soon. Obviously, we saw him float that in advance of the uh, Michigan election totally date. Totally contrary to what both Israel and Hamas, and Hamas actually said, they, said about it. And, and his, his spokespeople have had to walk that back a little bit. But fundamentally, even without that little bit of chicanery that we saw this week, the United States has vetoed ceasefire resolutions before the UN three times now on three separate occasions. So even though there are these media cycles where the claim is made, and, and there was one just yesterday, the claim is made that it's because of Hamas that there can't be a ceasefire, what should be made really clear to the public is what Palestinians want, what Hamas wants is a permanent ceasefire. Otherwise, there's no guarantee that the bombardments won't stop and that they won't be ethnically cleansed regardless if they hand over all the hostages. And so what they need is some guarantee. All ceasefire deals are, are going to not be successful if Israel won't accept the idea that there has to be a permanent ceasefire at some point and that they're not going to get territorial control of Gaza. As long as that is the explicit or tacit ambition, we're not going to have a ceasefire. And that's a very bad situation for Joe Biden to be in from a political perspective, not to mention the moral implications. More rising right after this. It's report card time, and President Biden is failing when it comes to immigration. New polling data shows that voters give the president's handling of the southern border an F. A new Harvard Caps-Harris poll reveals that 44 percent of respondents say the surge of migrant crossings is the Biden administration's biggest failure. A majority of Republicans, 57 percent, nearly 30 percent of Democrats and nearly half of independents expressed that sentiment. Perhaps hoping to stem the bleeding in his polling numbers, Biden plans to head to the border Thursday to assess the situation and get some good optics. Biden will have company as former president and GOP frontrunner Donald Trump also scheduled to visit at the same time. Now, per The Hill, Biden continues to press Congress to act on immigration, but is mulling using executive authority to do something about the massive wave of illegal immigrants crossing the border. Trump's team lambasted Biden's visit. Trump spokeswoman Carolyn Levitt released a statement saying, quote, Biden's last-minute insincere attempt to chase President Trump to the border won't cut it. Americans note Biden is single-handedly responsible for the worst immigration crisis in history. Border security has become such a hot topic as of late, due in part to a steady flow of drugs smuggled into the U.S. through Mexico, most notably fentanyl half of which, it's worth noting, uh, comes from China. California Governor Gavin Newsom released a statement Tuesday calling fentanyl a poison and revealing that a record number of seizures from the drug occurred in 2023, amounting to 62,224 pounds of fentanyl, which was seized in the state. Newsom says that could kill the global population twice over. Hmm. Here to discuss this topic further is author, author of the Mostly Peaceful Substack, Julio Rosas. Welcome back to Rising Julio. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, so I, I think last we talked to you was before, or maybe during the discussion of the, the border deal, which is now very much dead. Republicans um, hearing from, I, I think, some of the people in their districts that they didn't want this bill. At the same time, polls showing us that people trust Trump more than Biden on the border. Um, what do you make of the uh, recent um, uh, narrative around uh, immigration and uh, what Biden is doing about it? Well, I just think it's funny because when the, the border deal talks were still in progress, Biden and his administration was saying that they needed this bill in order to take action at the border. But um, that wasn't true. They know it wasn't true. And, and, and we know this because, as you mentioned, the administration is finally taking a look at the executive action and the executive power, which is what I was referring to in, in the previous interview that I had with you guys. Um, so it, it's just, it, it's a bait and switch. Um, the American people know it. That's why the polling is showing that this is his worst, uh, worst issue that he has worked on because he made it an issue. Um, and so, yeah, he's going down to the border today, but you know, that that's not going to do anything. It's not going to change his mind. And it's not coincidental that he decided to go to the least impacted part of the border down in Brownsville. Let's say that Biden doesn't really want to do anything on the border and he won't use his executive authority to do so. There is this bipartisan border bill, which would have enormously funded um, to the tunes of billions of dollars ICE, border security, um, administrative law judges to help process claims more quickly. ICE is currently facing, according to NBC News, a $500 million budget shortfall unless Congress takes action. Why not simply vote through that legislation and if and when Trump becomes president or Republican becomes president next year, they can continue to make additional reforms? Why not have something at least be done in the interim with the uh, allowance of Republicans having voted for it in, the, in Congress? Well, I mean, the House Republicans already passed the H.R. 2, which included many of the actual good provisions that the Senate border deal had. So that's number one. Uh, number two, it also just gives the Biden administration uh, a pass on their purposeful failure to actually secure the border. Um, that That's one of the things that uh, just makes that was one of the things that made the border deal bad, because, again, it was abdicating or it, it appeared that, you know, Biden didn't need to actually didn't have it within his already power because the, the whole this whole started uh, on day one he undid executive orders that the trump administration did to uh, work to secure the border um so if, if if he didn't do that i mean all he had to do was just leave that alone um and we wouldn't have seen uh what we ha what we have seen and what i've seen over the past uh, couple of years because when when you have that posture coming from the coming from the oval office uh, people are going to respond to incentives. Um, yes, the, you know, the, the world is, you know, a large part of the world is in a terrible place and people want to come to the United States just by virtue of us being a great country. Uh, but when there's that pull factor coming in from the United States government itself, where not only can you get in easily, but also uh, have a much easier time staying, even if you don't actually uh, qualify for asylum, uh, a lot of people are going to take advantage of that. And we've seen uh, not just desperate people, but we've seen uh, hardened criminals from places like Venezuela uh, wreak havoc on cities within the country. If I could just follow up on one thing you said there. You said it would it's not a good idea to pass the legislation which would fund the border, which currently is facing a, a deficit, as I mentioned, because it would give Biden a pass. Is that kind of an acknowledgment that this is a political consideration that's being put ahead of addressing what has been described, I don't think un wrongly, as a crisis at the border? No, not at all, because also just the fact that it was paired with foreign aid, 
uh, number one, that had spent more money on, on other countries than our own. That, that was also problematic, but also it would handicap future uh, administrations. Like uh, you mentioned that, well, why not just work on it afterwards? Because uh, anything dealing with immigration, it would have had to deal with, like, in terms of lawsuits, it would have to go only through the D.C. Circuit Court. It also funded uh, NGOs that are helping facilitate uh, this 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 problem. And so it, 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 as I said before, it spend it spent more money that we don't have and gives more power that the U.S. government doesn't need. It already has all that. So it's not a political sign. It's just saying that, look, we already know what works. It was working before. So you just have to do that instead of passing another wasteful spending bill that, yes, I mean, yeah, there were some good things in it, but it was paired with a lot of horrible things as well. Just to, clar just to clarify, though, I, and I'm sorry, I'm not. This won't be a question, but the it was uh, the border bill was lumped with the foreign aid bills because that's what Republicans asked for as they were being um, persuaded to support those foreign aid bills last fall. So they explicitly said, "Give us the foreign, give us an immigration bill, and then we'll consider your foreign foreign aid bill." And they, the Democrats, basically called their bluff. Just just to be clear on the posture of that. Well, here's my question for you, Julio. Let's say that. Donald Trump is reelected, uh, takes office with a mandate to fix what's going wrong at the border. What do you think he should do to address all of these issues that polls show wildly that people are very upset about? Well, just really quick to the previous point, I understand that what that's what some you know, quote unquote, members of Republicans in in Congress asked for in terms of the bill. But you, when you actually ask regular Republican voters, they they never wanted that kind of stipulation. So. Uh, but in terms of, uh, you know, yes, let's say uh, Trump gets back into office. I mean, really, it's just a matter of going back to what he was pursuing before. Um, I mean, it's just start building border wall. Uh, we need uh, the, the third country agreements that we had that Biden administration also undid. It, go, it, it goes beyond just remain in Mexico, although obviously that that's that's a part of that. Um, just, just those three things alone will start, you know, making an impact because the, the posture and the the incentives that are coming from the U.S. federal government are no longer there. Um, and then, of course, now we also have, you know, maybe some of the sanctuary cities are seeing the, you know, the disaster effects and maybe they're willing to overturn their, their local ordinances to actually work with ICE um, because we've seen uh, just with recent cases, you know, w with the University of Georgia um, this, this past week, um, th th there are consequences to, to having lax uh, immigration laws or, you know, an unwillingness at a local level to not work with the federal government on, on this important issue. Julio Rosas, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Robbie, what's on your radar today? So Adam Rubenstein is a journalist and former opinion editor at The New York Times. Now, as a person of right-leaning political sensibilities, Rubenstein previously worked for The Wall Street Journal and The Weekly Standard. He was brought to The Times' opinion pages with a mandate to help diversify its ideological offerings. His bosses said they expected him to use his contacts in conservative media to solicit, research, and improve op-eds that would advance contrarian arguments and challenge the paper's own editorial point of view, as well as its readers. This mandate resulted in the now infamous publication of an editorial by Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, on June 3, 2020, in the midst of the nationwide protests following the death of George Floyd. Headlined, that op-ed, Send in the Troops. In the op-ed, Cotton called for the federal government to deploy the military to end the rioting and looting in U.S. cities. 
Now, one can raise a number of practical, philosophical, even legal objections to such a proposal. However, it was not exactly a controversial suggestion, at least as far as public opinion was concerned. Polls showed more than half of Americans, American voters, wanted the feds to mount a more aggressive response to all the law-breaking. But among the New York Times' own staff, the op-ed proved to be radioactive. Times journalists went ballistic, publicly attacking their own organization for daring to run such a piece. A characteristic response came from the Times' Nicole Hannah-Jones, the 1619 Project originator, who wrote on Twitter, As a black woman, as a journalist, as an American, I am deeply ashamed that we ran this. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with opinion journalists criticizing the thoughts of a U.S. senator, of course. Many on staff did not stop there. On the contrary, they argued that the Times never should have published the op-ed at all, that platforming such an opinion was an act of violence against black people and would cause them harm. These staff members became organized, and soon enough, many of them started tweeting nearly identical statements that the op-ed had put black writers and others in danger. Eventually, more than 1,000 Times employees signed a letter to top New York Times bosses accusing them of jeopardizing, quote, our reporters' ability to work safely and effectively. With hindsight, it's very clear what they were doing. Appropriating the language of human resources, hostile environment, workplace safety, etc., for the ideological project of shutting down an opinion that clashed with theirs. And the gambit worked. In an attempt to mollify the staffers, the Times published a groveling apology in the form of a self-flagellating editor's note that's still appended to the op-ed to this day. A.G. Salzberger, the publisher of the Times, forced James Bennett, the editor of the opinion pages, to resign, and he did so. Other personnel involved with the Cotton op-ed were reassigned. Rubenstein left the paper some months later. This sorry episode is currently being relitigated four years later in light of a revelatory article published in The Atlantic earlier this week. Rubenstein is finally telling his side of the story and persuasively argues that the Times threw him, Bennett, and Cotton under the bus in order to appease a woke mob that worked for the Times. He debunks several of the criticisms of the op-ed, namely that it had included obvious factual errors, and points out that Times op-eds penned by literal authoritarian dictators such as Muammar Gaddafi, Erdogan, even Vladimir Putin, not produced any internal fury whatsoever. It's very telling whose words are described as literal violence and whose are not. Quote, last year, the page published an essay by the Hamas-appointed mayor of Gaza City, and few seem to mind, writes Rubenstein in The Atlantic. But whether the paper is willing to publish conservative views on issues such as abortion rights and the Second Amendment remains an open question. Now, his article certainly appears to confirm suspicions that the paper of record is at least at times enthralled to its liberal staffers. Now, since the publication of this record-straightening account, an interesting criticism of it has appeared on social media. And this is what I really want to talk about. This criticism takes aim at a fascinating anecdote related by Rubenstein during the article's opening paragraphs. Now, according to him, he participated in an orientation activity upon first joining the Times. An HR representative asked new employees to each answer a question about themselves. Rubenstein was told to describe his favorite sandwich and volunteered the spicy chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A. The HR person chided him for citing Chick-fil-A at all, fast food chain with, socially, uh, with a socially conservative founder. Quote the HR person, we don't do that here, they hate gay people. That was the response. So this is a self-parody of woke shibboleths, if ever there was one. In fact, this response by a Times HR figure, so embarrassing that some liberals have decided it simply cannot be true. 
Enter again Nicole Hannah-Jones, who I referenced earlier, opining on X that the anecdote in question never happened. She just flatly stated that, even though she had no knowledge of it. She was hardly alone, however, in accusing Rubenstein of making it up. Writer Michael Hobbs said the anecdote was, quote, egregiously false. Never mind that over the years, Rubenstein has told a number of other journalists, including yours truly, about this incident. The Atlantic actually verified it. The writer Jesse Single reached out to the publication, and an Atlantic editor told him that Times employees with contemporaneous knowledge of the orientation session confirmed that it had happened that way. The full tweet read, Atlantic spokeswoman on the Chick-fil-A incident that Nicole Hannah-Jones and many others claimed must have been fabricated. The details were confirmed by the New York Times employees who had contemporaneous knowledge of the incident in question. Hmm. So what's the point of all this? Well, the next time conservative, libertarian, or independent thinkers are accused of spreading misinformation or reflexively distrusting the media, I think it would be helpful to remind the accusers, Rubenstein's accusers in the mainstream press, that we're all in good company. So did you see any of this discourse on social media over the past few days? I'm afraid I did. Uh, Chick-fil-A gate, uh, everyone just denying, which I don't know, anyone who has sat through, and I'm not calling out any specific thing, certainly not at the company I work for currently, but I worked for Comcast many years ago, and the HR orientation seminars are like laughable parody. Even before wokeness was a concept, what we used to call political correctness, I fully believe this happened exactly the way he said it. He told a number of people at the time, including me, that it happened that way. And now they verified, according to people who were in the room or heard of it at the time that it happened. But um, so, like, my Twitter feed was full of people like, no, that couldn't have happened. And a, a woke HR session, no, that's unthinkable. We would never be so, uh, so, so like, self-parodying in this way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's no doubt that the actual... HR, DEI uh, kinds of um, meetings and processes that they have people go through, even in the context that they're supposed to be deployed in, which is making the workplace better as opposed to being shoved into editorial processes and the like, is largely ineffective. I was subject to many of those kinds of trainings when I was an attorney, and in my experience, I didn't, I didn't have so much of an issue with the kinds of examples that were being offered up by the DEI practitioners as much as how ineffective they were because they didn't have any power to influence the behavior of the people at the law firm who actually had power, which is the partners. And so I think there frankly was a need, demonstrated by the fact that memorably, I remember at one DEI training session, they were trying to, they asked us all, the partners and the um, associates, to break out into different rooms and raise their concerns about what had been going on in the workplace. The associates all came back with, you know, serious substantive issues, you know, how to get work, how to have interpersonal, you know, like this mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it'll make a, a law firm work more smoothly. And the partners came back laughing about how once there was an associate who smelled so bad, they had to fumigate his office. And that associate was uh, of South Asian descent. Oof. So, you know, we all, you, know, you can call that us getting triggered or microaggressed in this meeting. But the point is, I don't think that people should be making those kinds of statements in a DEI context. And what does it mean about what they're saying elsewhere if they're saying things like that there? But that's all to say the DEI trainers didn't do anything about that and couldn't really do anything about that because this isn't an issue of people kind of being lectured into compliance. It's a power issue, and people in power are going to do what they want to do and exert their power on others. So the issue, the issue here is, 
is, is broad and multifaceted. There are obviously editorial problems at the New York Times. They're dealing right now with this huge expose out of The Intercept, which demonstrates that they didn't follow the facts to publish their um, uh, October 7th um, widespread rape story. They decided they wanted to publish that story found two people with little to no writing experience, a woman and her nephew, um, and paired them together with um, uh, a, a, a more of established reporter, Gettleman, and basically largely created a narrative that they're now walking back mm -hmm. and walking away from, something that was so unsubstantiated that when they tried to turn it into a podcast version of the article, the editorial team on the podcast side couldn't verify it enough to even go through with that particular project. And it's not surprising to me that the editorial failings here are happening along a lot of different political axes and political lines. And so I think this is a problem. I agree with you that it's not um, unsurprising that people would say kind of remarkable and outrageous things during a DEI training session. But it seems to me that the core problem here is that newsrooms aren't making decisions based on good editorial judgment, point blank, period, and that many people are going to use their political, um, whatever political tools at their disposal, whatever culture war tools at their disposal to get the kind of editorializing that they prefer out into the fore, and we should all be guarded against that. I think in hindsight, this whole incident looks even more embarrassing for, frankly, the staff of The New York Times that it was handled this way. I, look, I didn't agree with the Tom Cotton op-ed. I didn't think that was a good solution. I, it, it was it was not a it was not a crazy thing to suggest. Given polls suggested that most people wanted it, but no, no, most the polls the polls suggest that most people wanted more of a law enforcement response, or do they want military troops marching through their cities in response to quote cadres of um, uh, Antifa of left Antifa hordes? That wasn't exactly the, the cadres of left was the part. They, of the they quote. wanted federal troops. That's what the polls showed. That, that's what people said. Now you could say that's wrong, and people don't know that that's you know that wouldn't. I mean, Cotton's argument that it wa was that it was constitutional. That was the whole debate, um, and people. But people didn't say the staff didn't say that argument is wrong. They said this argument makes us unsafe, and you shouldn't be able to print it in the paper. And I think that's why it became such a big yeah, deal because that, that was pretty crazy. I think that's fair, but. People are going to make those kinds of accusations in the midst of making a substantive argument about it shouldn't be um, uh, printed. And in the in the editor in the like um, proviso that now precedes the article, if you go and try to read it, they point out that there were these editorial misjudgments that were made, including the title of the piece, which was not Tom Cotton's fault. They accept they admit that it was bad editorial judgment to frame it that way, and it was more alarmist than necessary. This this quote from Cotton about cadres of left-wing radicals like Antifa, which were unsubstantiated allegations. But they have been substantiated subsequently, and it is that claim is true that there were Antifa members among the protesters. I mean, that's in the Atlantic article. Cadres of left-wing Antifa. So so if, if, your, if your argument is that there were... But there were no an Antifa protesters? You're, so you're saying that people thought that they should deploy the troops because there were one or two Antifa members mixed in with millions of protesters? No. The obvious implication here is that there are hordes, throngs, millions of people in the street that are belong to this amorphous Antifa, which, by the way, being an anti-fascist is a good thing.
Well, okay, but that doesn't mean the claim is wrong. You can, right, you can take is, that position. It is. It's a, no, it's not wrong. If I write an op-ed that says there's an overwhelming problem, that there are hordes, there are cadres of the um, immigrants flowing through our, our cities and robbing and raping women and doing all of these things that aren't true, obviously that is inflammatory and inaccurate, right? I can say not there were five Antifa protesters at this protest. I can say that, and I can make the argument that the military should be deployed to address five Antifa members, 10 Antifa members, 20 Antifa members, whatever it is. But if you're, if you're intentionally embellishing the severity of a problem to call for, as a elected representative, people to m mobilize the military to corral a civilian population, that needs to be written in a way that's accurate and precise and not an embellishment. What's not written accurately is the, is the editorial note that now appears on the column saying that that was not substantiated because it was, in fact, substantiated. Where, where were these cadres? You can read the Atlantic article okay. where it is, where it is <laughs> there were, in fact, Antifa members Well, what was done about them? Do the... we still got to go out and get these cadres of Antifa that apparently okay, are out there in the, the solution, in the street? But it was not, you can say this is not the right way to well, handle where, this. Well, where do they all go? There's apparently cadres of left-wing radicals that, did they just disappear after 2020? After what? After burning buildings and, and setting cop cars on fire and killing polls. people? Yes, they did all of those things. Polls, all of those uh, things happened. I know, mostly peaceful rioting, but poll, it was rioting. Polls show that most Americans also supported the burning down of that police, that police station as well. So All right. polls, polls are polls. You can't pick and choose them. <laughs> okay, I said that yesterday as well. More rising right after this. As part of a fiery closed-door deposition on Wednesday, Hunter Biden is denying he involved his father in any of his business dealings, rebuking GOP claims of impropriety surrounding the Biden clan. Hunter said, quote, I am here today to provide the committees with the one uncontestable fact that should end the false premise of this inquiry. I did not involve my father in my business, not while I was a practicing lawyer, not in my investments or transactions, domestic or international, not as a board member and not as an artist. Never. Biden asserted that Republicans had, quote, built your entire partisan house of cards on lies and referred multiple times to Alexander Smirnov, whom officials alleged fabricated his testimony on the Biden's business connections. But House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer insisted that Biden was lying and that the process to get him, President Joe Biden, and the Department of Justice to cooperate had been extremely difficult. Here's Comer yesterday. And the basis of what we've learned is that the Bidens didn't have a legitimate business. Their business was selling access to Joe Biden, the brand. And what we've learned is, is a little bit about the business model from three different associates that said that uh, Joe Biden uh, communicated with the people right before the closing, so he was the closure, the closure of the, of the influence peddling scheme, and that in, in at least two cases, one was CEFC, which was one that Hunter Biden was, was leading, one of the influence peddling schemes that he was leading, and one with uh, Jim Biden, which was the AmeriCorps deal that Politico did a good job writing about. Uh, both times uh, in their scheme, in their pitch to obtain money in their influence peddling scheme, they said Joe Biden was interested in an equity ownership stake and that Joe Biden might even, if the price is right, be on the board of, of these two entities. 
Congressman Matt Gates agreed with Comer's assessment, angrily walking back to give a brief presser following the deposition and railing against Hunter. Gates argued that the younger Biden provided no value to any of the companies he worked for, and there was purely a scheme for these companies to get closer to his dad. Let's watch. It is a mirage to believe that Hunter Biden was engaged in international business. This was uh, a bribe masquerading as an international business transaction. Nothing more, nothing less. And GOP Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina added that Hunter had been, quote, defiant and dishonest in his testimony, and that some of that same testimony had been, quote, in direct conflict with other witnesses. So... This uh, ended up happening, this behind-closed-door um, exchange with Hunter Biden. He'd previously said he would only do it in public, but did went through with the closed-door session. So we're just hearing how uh, various Republicans characterize it. Hunter Biden's own attorneys characterized it as having gone very well for him. Uh, from their standpoint, uh, he refuted many of the claims. And also, they must be riding a little bit high after the knowledge that this uh, person who'd made the accusation of the of the of the five million or whatever the amount of money was has been uh, is being prosecuted for lying and Russian connections, et cetera. And, and someone who, in all fairness, Republicans had once characterized yes. as really core to their case. Yes. So now some of the details here are interesting. Uh, Hunter says he never really tried to involve his, uh, his father in his businesses. The email, the big guy email. He said was sent um, uh, was sent by a, an associate, and that he thought it was a crazy idea. The claim, the message on WhatsApp, where he said he was sitting next to his dad right now, he was not. He says he was not sitting next to his dad, and that he was drunk when he sent it. Um, look, I, 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 and then there's you know the outstanding questions, um, the, the claims Devin Archer, this business associate, has made to Tucker and others that um, that Joe Biden was called during a business meeting of Hunter's. Um, there's also that the, uh, the Biden people had initially denied that he was at that dinner with uh, business associates, but he, he in fact was. So I, I don't know if it's definitively closed the issue that Hunter did not, or Hunter or people around him did not try to involve Joe Biden, but we are getting further and further away from demonstrating that there no, was any the tangible crime. involvement. <laughs> the issue, we talk endlessly about how Democrats are on this or that kind of political witch hunt, and that their only investment in this trial or the other against Donald Trump is for the political implications of it. And the same is true here. I have no interest, I don't think anyone should have any interest in defending Hunter Biden. He's had a difficult life and has quite obviously made bad choices and quite obviously has benefited personally from his relationship to his father. I don't think anyone's really arguing that he is qualified to be on any board of an, an energy company any more so than Jer Jared Kushner is qualified to be a senior advisor. Yeah, I think to the that came up in United the States hearing, actually. I think he, he cited Kushner. <laughs> yeah, it's absurd. I mean, and pro-Trump people making nepotism arguments is really the height of hypocrisy, but none of that is really the point. The point here is that until you can, for political reasons, none of this matters unless you can implicate Joe Biden in being a willing participant in this influence peddling scheme. Not the idea that Hunter Biden is moving to the world saying, buy my art because I'm Hunter Biden, denying that the only value and all likelihood of his art projects are the fact that he has this relationship with the president would be absurd. But that is not what constitutes a criminal scheme that implicates the president of the United States of America. And so I don't know. I'd be interested to see 
how the public has responded to this over time. I, I would be shocked to find that there's a single Democrat-leaning voter who cares a whit about any of this. Um, sure. But maybe it, it does serve the purpose of closing the gap between perceptions of misconduct, criminal misconduct between Donald Trump as he's facing these nearly 100 indictments and Joe Biden, on the other hand, who has really tried to frame himself throughout his entire career as just a good and decent guy. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about the polls, Biden versus Trump, this isn't really an issue. I actually, maybe, I don't know if they even ask it in polls, but it, it doesn't seem to come up in the reasons people, you know, people trust Trump more on the economy, more on immigration. People are, you know, a, a super majority of people concerned about Trump's age, or uh, uh, Biden's age, including a majority of Democrats. Um, it's not, I, I think, as other issues with Biden have become more salient, obviously progressive dissatisfaction with the Middle East policy and some other things. As those things become more salient, maybe this has just faded to the background a little bit. I mean, it's still going on, and it is still something, frankly, that I know very conservative, um, the MAGA base still wants litigated and investigated, um, again, because their perception is that, well, they're trying to do everything they can to find something criminally involving Trump, so we should do that to Biden as well. But you're, I, I agree that I don't think it's an issue that's taking center stage in terms of who's going to win, Trump or Biden, and, and you know, winning over these the, the swing voters who are out there. And look, there's a really interesting opportunity here for um, third-party candidates to point out how much energy and time is being spent in these kind of congressional hearings right after we just had one of the least productive Congress congressional sessions of all time, at a time when Americans really do feel like there are a lot of really exigent issues to be addressed, whether it is the economy, whether it is the border. We've seen Republicans take the position on wanting to have intransigence on the border because they, they believe it's better to run on Biden not doing anything about the border than actually fixing the border uh, in the first place. So, you know, I think there would be more frustration and, frankly, more political cost to pay for engaging in these shenanigans where both sides seem to be spending more time trying to indict and prosecute each other than doing the work of making the country better for the American people if there were other alternatives. But hmm. here we are. Put up or shut up. I've said it a lot when we've talked about this subject. It never seems to happen. Um, that evidence, the ironclad evidence, is uh, still elusive. More rising right after this. Is Gavin Newsom cooking up a loaf of corruption? The Golden State recently passed legislation raising the minimum wage for fast food workers from $16 to $20 an hour, with one large, doughy exception. Chains that bake bread and sell it as a standalone item are exempt. Per Bloomberg, Governor uh, Gavin Newsom was the one who pushed for that exemption, as it just so happens that one of the main beneficiaries of the carve-out is Greg Flynn, a longtime Newsom donor whose California holdings include two dozen Panera Bread locations. Flynn has been involved in multiple businesses uh, dealing with the Golden State governor on top of contributing to Newsom's political campaigns, including $100,000 to fight a recall effort and nearly $65,000 to support the governor's re-election in 2022. Flynn denied to Bloomberg that he played a role in baking the bread exemption into the minimum wage law. Panera's non-Newsom-connected competitors are bracing for a tough adjustment to the law. McDonald's Corporation franchisees have estimated the wage law will cost each California location an extra $250,000 a year and characterize it as a devastating financial blow, while Chipotle Mexican Grill said it's considering a price increase to offset the extra expense. California legislature argued it
it would fight back against, quote, abuse, low pay, few benefits, and minimal job security that workers face in these positions. Newsom has been particularly cagey, however, when it comes to justifying the exemption. The governor actually mixed his food metaphors, explaining the carve-out was, quote, part of the sausage-making of the legislative <laughs> process. So, yeah, I saw a lot of criticism of this on social media. Um, obviously, you and I disagree about minimum wage policies in general, but it, it seemed to me and probably to everyone that whatever the minimum wage is, if it's specifically for the restaurant industry, that it is just utterly crony capitalism corruption to exempt one specific, a narrow kind of subcategory of this that mostly just applies to Panera, who happens to be a top donor to the governor, right? What are we missing here? This yeah, look, is naked corruption. The only carve-outs I want to see are in the form of a bread bowl, Robbie. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Like, if you're, if you're going to... Let's get going here. The, look, we're Let's top, get cooking. Top Republicans in the state apparently want to do an investigation, and I think they absolutely should. It, the optics of this are not good, and the, I would like to hear more about the justification of excluding this uh, tranche of fast food uh, restaurants in the first place. Now, it, it's worth knowing that whenever there are minimum wage raises, there are businesses threaten to pass costs on to consumers in an effort to um, gin up consumer frustration and to oppose those minimum wage raises. There is a, a systemic effort to make Americans think of themselves as consumers exclusively as opposed to workers, which, of course, the overwhelming majority of Americans are. I think it's worth noting that the, uh, there's, uh, the discourse around fast food workers often characterizes them as kids who don't need to earn any kind of wage. But uh, and in fact, the average fast food, the kind of average exemplary fast food, uh, fast food worker in the United States of America is a 26-year-old woman and a quarter of all fast food workers are parents. So these are salaries that are being used to support households. And it is also worth knowing that California is unique in this regard, is better than many states in this regard, and having a, a minimum wage is well above the national average. But the national uh, federal minimum wage, which is extant in most southern red states, hasn't been raised since 2009. Yeah. I mean, again, we, you and I are so far on this issue. I don't know what, it, what is, we can mostly say about it. I think, you know, businesses should have the right to offer a sum of money, and then in people who want to work there can agree to work for that amount of money or not. Um, it, they do end up passing the costs on. I mean, you, you can think it's fine to, to pass the costs uh, onto um, consumers because it's important to pay the people more. They, they do frequently pass the costs onto consumers. That we had in D.C., a, it wasn't a, I don't think it was structured as a minimum wage hike. It was like an adjustment to the tipped wage or something. The, the effect of it being that more guaranteed minimum pay for people who work in the restaurant industry in D.C. And the prices, um, I don't know how, how often you've been out to dinner lately, the prices have been jacked up at restaurants across the um, city to an extent. That I haven't really noticed, but I am really happy that the people who serve me my food at restaurants uh, have a living wage. Mm -hmm. um, one uh, uh, other kind of related story that happened in terms of um, the villainous actions of some of these companies and their choice to pass off costs to consumers despite seeing um, record high profits uh, across various industries is the move. Did you see this? Uh, Wendy's uh, said that we're going to uh, start doing surge pricing, increasing the price of their food during high activity times, just like you would get in an Uber. Yes, I 
think that's fine. That's what's wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of uh, behavior that many of us see as a, a dystopian glimpse into the extent to which companies will go to to extract every living cent is happy out of hour a consumer a base. Prices vary depending on the time of the day, depending on how many people are going to be there, when they're trying to attract more customers, when they're trying, when there's too many, and so they want to discourage more people. That's the economics behind the surge price. Well, you're, Uber, you're a mean. fan, but there was pretty significant public backlash, and it and sounds like Whitney's has walked back their choice to do that, I think wisely so. You can't put a cost, you can't, you can't put a price on goodwill, and they lost a lot uh, with that particular announcement. Well, it seems like the market sorted it out. People were unhappy about it, and they changed their mind. I mean, I, I did that's see... A, that's a good lesson, that if you're unhappy fine. about something, and you protest, and you push back, you don't have to put up with some of the things that these well, corporations will fine. try to stick you with. People can complain about... I mean, Wendy's did push back on the idea... I looked at this a little bit. They claimed they weren't, that it was misconstrued and that they were not actually intending to do this. So I think people got mm. pretty upset. Honestly, again, it's, it's, it's not. I mean, the fast food restaurants charge different, in different parts of the country because the average income, how much your money is worth, is, you know, is different. This is why part of the reason I would oppose a federal minimum wage because how much your money buys in um, in parts of the country is just vastly different. So it would be, I mean, the, the cost of food and housing and education varies wildly from state to state. Right. Although I think most people can agree that $7.25 an hour, uh, which was, again, the 2009 minimum wage and also the 2024 federal minimum wage right, but my point is, is that's more well below uh, the bottom tranche of what anybody can uh, survive on in any state in the United States of America. Right, but the, I mean, the economist's perspective is that if you, like the, you, you can't force a business to pay people more than it values their labor. So if you raise it past the point at which, then they just won't offer or employ that person anymore or the business just can't stay. I mean, again, restaurants are closed in DC and other cities all the time because they can't make the economics of it work because they don't have enough customers. When you have to raise prices high enough, then you not enough people come. They stay home. They they cook for themselves, and then the business goes under. So, and then there's no jobs for Look, anyone. Big big Panera Bread, McDonald's. I, I'm glad that they have your sympathy. You're in their corner, uh, arguing that they should not be squeezed, the little guy, uh, into paying decent living wages for the millions of people they employ across the country. Let us. <laughs> Let us know what you I, think yeah, about I, I it all. I'm not involving the government in this exchange. They have money. These people want to work. They make an arrangement about how that's going to go, and I don't involve the government in it. But all that's right. my vision for how these things should be. Let us know what you think. Stick around. We're rising after this. Over 100 Palestinians were killed waiting for aid in Gaza City on Thursday, bringing the death toll in Gaza to over 30,000. Israeli forces opened fire on the crowd as they pulled flour and canned goods off trucks, per an Associated Press report. According to reporting from Al Jazeera's Ismail Al-Goh, after opening fire, Israeli tanks advanced and ran over many of the dead and injured bodies, saying, quote, it is a massacre on top of the starvation threatening citizens in Gaza. The aid truck carrying food into northern Gaza was the first big food delivery in over a month shedding light on the food shortage crisis that erupted in Gaza since Israel's campaign against Hamas started in, on October 7th. According to the UN, a quarter of Gaza's 2.3 million Palestinians are facing starvation. Mm -hmm. Earlier this week, President Biden said there would be a ceasefire in Gaza, 
But according to Israel and Hamas, it's not happening. Representatives for both the IDF and Hamas have poured water all over that optimism. They say there are still significant gaps to bridge in the negotiations. Hamas wants a guarantee of a total ceasefire and the withdrawal of Israeli troops from Gaza. Israel says no ceasefire deal until the hostages are back. Meanwhile, a new expose in The Intercept investigates the origins of the now infamous New York Times October 7th sexual violence story. The Intercept's investigation finds that Anant Schwartz, one of the article's authors, admits she was approached by The New York Times to tell the story, not the other way around. When asked if the story was The New York Times' proposal, Schwartz said unequivocally, Unequivocally, obviously, of course, the paper stood behind us 200% and gave us the time, the investment, the resources to go in-depth with this investigation as much as needed. So this story has really started to explode. Of course, we had um, uh, the Gray Zones, uh, Max Blumenthal on, and they and Electric Infantata did a lot of the core initial reportings that I think uh, opened up some skepticism about the underlying sourcing of that particular piece, and now The Intercept has done some really important follow-up. So here's here's why it uh, matters. We covered earlier this week the fact that uh, Schwartz and the other uh, one of the other writers, who was her nephew, did not have any journalism experience, next to no journalism experience, before being apparently recruited to write this front-page New York Times article. And the reason this is so important is because the article made some very specific claims very substantial claims that it's now starting to walk back without fully articulating or, or including all of the evidence that came out in their own investigation. So one of the things that The Intercept reported is that um, Schwartz attempted to contact every rape crisis hospital clinic in Israel to substantiate the claims that were made in that uh, New York Times article and didn't turn up a single victim or a complainant of sexual assault in that process. She did not include that fact, the absence of evidence, as part of her reporting, which is pretty significant. Would you agree? Well, uh, yes. I, I mean, I've, I, I've been persuaded by the guests we've had on to discuss this that, um, and, and also by the fact that people involved in the sourcing for the story have um, backpedaled uh, uh, some of it or, or said they were mischaracterized, uh, I think the family member the of family one of the yeah. victims. I mean, it's, I don't, it's not inherently suspicious that there aren't any rape crisis centers who have, I mean, the, the victims were killed, so no one came forward to say that they were sexually assaulted. However, I do think they, the New York Times clearly embraced a framing for the story and a headline for the story that goes beyond um, what was, what has been demonstrated or proven. You know, I've talked about the absolutely graphic nature of the October 7th footage, which I have seen, which shows, you know, utter depravity, people blown apart, people murdered, vic bodies of victims of people whose hands are tied behind their back in all states of undress, including that. Um, but th there is not as, you know, as hor horrific as it is, all the people dead at the music festival, bodies piled up everywhere. It needs no embellishment. It is just horrible. Um, but you do not find, you know, ironclad evidence or support for the, the, the broader thrust of the New York Times article. Right. And it's worth noting that there is substantiated report, uh, reporting, including uh, claims from witness, uh, victims themselves, when it comes to the uh, investigation that's now been carried out by the UN into widespread sexual assault against Palestinians um, 
as the, during their occupation and since October 7th um, by members of the IDF and corroborated additionally by what are now, I think, three or four instances of members of the IDF posing with the undergarments of looted from the homes of Palestinians um, as they've been. Well, now aren't you adopting the framing we're saying is going too far on the other side? Do you say you just said widespread, pointing to a couple Oh, I'm not pointing Instant. to a couple. That's that's the UN. I can read the actual UN reporting language. And remember that the okay, UN also so your wanted to. Position is Hamas does not use weapon as a rape as a, a rape as a weapon of war, but Israel does. The, no, I, I don't think I said white rape as a weapon of war. I said widespread, and I couldn't find the actual language in the UN investigation. It's worth knowing that the UN also wanted to investigate the claims of uh, rape against. Uh, uh, Victims, uh, Israeli victims, but Israel will not allow them to do so. Um, while I'm looking that up to find the exact language, which I'm more than happy to read into the record because it's pretty scathing, um, let's talk about this horrible event that also happened as we were sleeping last night. There have been a scarcity of food trucks delivered, obviously, into Gaza, particularly there's rampant star starvation in northern Gaza. Apparently, this is one of the only food trucks that became available. And it emerged as this horrible scene where apparently Israeli soldiers started shooting at Palestinians and a, some kind of um, melee uh, ensued that apparently also involved running over Palestinian bodies as part of the attempt to, I don't know, flee or get, get out of the situation. Following this reporting, um, there are some that are using this as a justification to, some of the Israeli government that are using this as a justification to stop uh, more aid going into the area, saying this is exactly why we can't deliver aid. And as we reported yesterday, a number of neighboring Arab countries have resorted to a food drop into the region as an effort to get supplies in, given that they have been restricted by the Israeli government. Mm. Yeah, that seems absolutely horrible and as... Uh just utterly, bafflingly tragic um, events unfolding there, obviously, that we hope come to an end as soon as possible. Um, Biden, as we mentioned yesterday and today, has said the prospect of a ceasefire is just around the horizon. Um, that does not actually appear to be the case whatsoever. It, it seems an exaggeration um, aimed at sapping some of the um, enthusiasm of the uncommitted vote in Michigan. Both Israel and Hamas have given no indication that they are near toward reaching a ceasefire. Um, Hamas's position is that uh, they, they want an immediate permanent ceasefire and no more Israeli troops in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Israel wants um, an end to Hamas's rule in Gaza and the return of hostages. So no one is really budging on that yet. The UN report, since you wanted me to read, this is from um, February 29th. UN experts today expressed alarm over credible allegations of egregious human rights violations to which Palestinian women and girls continue to be subjected in the Gaza Strip and West Bank. Palestinian women and girls have reportedly been arbitrarily executed in Gaza, often together with family members, including their children, according to information received. We are shocked by reports of the deliberate targeting and extrajudicial killing of Palestinian women and children in places where they sought refuge or while fleeing. Some of them were reportedly holding white pieces of cloth when they were killed by the Israeli army or affiliated uh, forces, the expert said. Uh, the article goes on. We are particularly distressed by reports that Palestinian women and girls in detention have also been subjected to multiple forms of sexual assault, such as being stripped naked and searched by male Israeli army officers. At least two female Palestinian detainees were reportedly raped, while others were reportedly threatened with rape and sexual violence, the expert said. They also noted that photos of female detainees in degrading circumstances were reportedly taken by the Israeli army and uploaded online.
Sounds like the UN should look into sexual and other human rights abuses being committed by, allegedly being committed by Israel and allegedly being committed by Hamas and other Palestinian terrorist organizations, and that would be a good use of their investigative powers to me. All right, stick around. We'll have more rising for you after this. Power players in Washington have just one question on their mind with Mitch McConnell out. Who's the new head honcho? The Senate Minority Leader announced that he planned to step down from GOP leadership come November. Politico reports that it appears to be one of a cadre of Johns who's set to fill the Kentucky Senator's shoes. Minority Whip John Thune of South Dakota, uh, South Dakota, former Whip John Cornyn from Texas, and GOP Conference Chair John Barrasso from Wyoming. The trio of Johns have been pictured with McConnell on a number of occasions, but per Politico, few GOP senators are declaring their preferred, quote, McConnell successor, preferring to adopt a wait-and-see approach to the succession struggle. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott demurred when asked which of the Johns he wanted to see in leadership, musing, quote, good question, while Missouri Senator Josh Hawley said he has no preference and is, quote, open to persuasion. The triumvirate of Johns all come with potential pros and cons to their candidacy. John Thune has previously expressed reservations at the thought of a second Trump presidency, initially endorsing Tim Scott for president before backing the former president earlier this week. Thune has also made comments critical of Trump's involvement on January 6th. John Cornyn chaired the National Republican Senatorial Committee for two election cycles and was GOP whip for six years, giving him a clear view of McConnell's challenges. On the con side of things, for some conservative Republicans, Cornyn was instrumental in pushing gun control with Democrats in 2022. What a, what a thing to be hated for. <laughs> Cornyn has also endorsed Trump, though with the caveat his election would, quote, not be without challenges. John Barrasso was the first of the trio to endorse Trump and has been able to build a number of connections with his colleagues in the role as GOP conference chair. Barrasso has yet to announce publicly that he's interested in the job. So, yeah, I was looking at the, the gun control legislation. It passed about a month after Uvalde. Um, it is not that significant. It's very mild. Um, the most noteworthy provision is apparently that it closed the boyfriend loophole. Um, it doesn't go anywhere near as far as what Democrats would have liked. And it is telling, it feels to me, that that would ever be a detriment that would go in the con uh, category, uh, that a month after one of the worst mass shootings uh, that the country has ever seen, we, have, we passed moderate Gun control legislation? I mean, Republicans oppose gun control. It's, that's, that is a, this is, you know, a... Do they also oppose kids being shot in their classrooms? I think they don't believe that gun control measures would reduce that outcome, given how blessedly rare school mass shootings are and how often there are already the laws on the books to prevent these people from getting firearms and they get them anyway, so they wonder whether further limiting the rights of law-abiding citizens to carry firearms would actually keep anyone safer. But I don't know specifically that that is going to hold him back very much. I think his comment that Trump's re-election would not be without its challenges is probably the more concerning line because absolute fealty to Trump is what matters most these days. Um, look, these three gentlemen are not, I would say, so different in terms of policy. Um, you could maybe squint at John Thune and call him 
the more moderate. Um, but again, whether you're conservative or moderate or liberal on the Republican side now doesn't have anything to do with policy, frankly. It just has to do with your position with respect to Trump. If you full-throatedly endorse him and defend him to the, to the e extreme degree, then you are considered right-wing, even, frankly, if you have other moderate positions, including on gun control. Trump. If you... If you you know, say Trump was a good president, but you don't like some of the things he did, then you're a moderate. If you say you're a Republican and you have a very conservative voting record like Mitt Romney, but you can't stand Trump and can't imagine ever him ever being president again, you're, the, you're a liberal Republican. It just matters with respect to your views on Trump. Sounds like that's trouble for Thune, who said after he voted to acquit Trump, um, quote, my vote to acquit should not be viewed as an exoneration for his conduct on January 6th or in the days and weeks leading up to it what former President Trump did to undermine faith in our election system and disrupt the peaceful transfer of power is inexcusable. And yes, you want to know how much chance he has of becoming the minority leader? This much chance. Despite uh, pivoting in just the last week to endorse Donald Trump? Too late. So, you know, that's, that's how it is. Now, this role matters a lot, obviously. This is a, uh, it, it matters, uh, it, uh, McConnell, uh, has tr had tremendous power to choose which campaigns are getting funding from his his pack, where to direct the GOP's financial resources to help, you know, in states where it's called the, the Senate match matchups that, you know, that we went through in 2022, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada. How how much more money, you know, could we could we get half a percentage point closer in Nevada if we sent some money here versus sending it somewhere else. That kind of prioritizing decision-making strategy was all on McConnell. Um, so, so it's a very important role in terms of recapturing the Senate, holding on to, um, uh, to, to the, the GOPs. They, they have the House and they're imperiled in that. Obviously, other people make decisions in the House. But it's, uh, it's a very, very important job and uh, we will see who's going to ultimately end up getting it. It will be the person I should suspect who gets along best with Trump. That's what's happened in the House since their shakeup. There are you know, all these different people competing. Uh, what, what Mike Johnson has going for him is that Trump seems to really like him, and he seems to say the right things about Trump, and he doesn't get any criticism in that direction, and that's what matters. Look, Trump having a good relationship um, with the uh, Senate leader would be a change of pace. Uh, McConnell has, is famous for having these disagreements with Trump having attacked his wife in some pretty significant ways. Do you remember this? Mm -hmm. uh, when Donald Trump said uh, his, his wife, Elaine Chao, uh, is Asian-American, he said, does Coco Chao have anything to do with Joe Biden's classified documents being sent and stored in Chinatown? Her husband, the old broken crow, is very close to Biden and the Democrats and, of course, China. Important to remember that Elaine Chao was a member of Trump's cabinet that he selected. So, uh, you know, another one of those examples. Um, it's pretty incredible what everyone will put up with. I, I think uh, the most important factor in picking another person is to have their name not start Mick, because um, we've now had McDaniel fall, McCarthy, McConnell's out, uh, Ronald McDonald, not going uh, to be the choice for a minority leader. Well, odds are good that his name starts with John. I guess uh, so. But are there any other... Um, Possibilities. Well, Rick Scott of Florida was clearly interested in the role um, uh, last time round, and I'm I'm. It's curious that I've not seen his name so much in this last. I mean, just in this last 24 hours. Honestly, I think someone 
not these three. Someone else could absolutely emerge. I, I don't see any reason specifically to think. And, and there's no clear, there's no strong preferences being publicly expressed right now. Nobody's rallying around one of them. Uh, I think it could very much be some other candidate. And on the speaker side, Mike Johnson, I don't think anyone had heard of him mm -hmm. until he kind of came out of nowhere to, to, to very impressively please everyone, Trump, the other members, the Freedom Caucus, everybody else. So whether that figure exists in the Senate and is someone other than the people being mentioned currently uh, could, could very well be the case. There are obviously a lot of people in the Senate, uh, Republican figures who are, who are well known on the national stage, like Tom Cotton, like Josh Hawley, like J.D. Fance, like Lindsey Graham. You know, we see a lot of these people interviewed on TV. I'm not sure any of them necessarily want this job because it is more, it's not a behind the scenes role, but it's an administrative role. And they're all kind of, uh, you know, in front of the camera people. So we shall see. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, I will be sipping mojitos on a beach in Mexico. That's not true. I'm just reading what's on the TV screen. It's not the case. I'll be here in DC still enjoying my day off. But Amber and Jessica will be in the Rising Fridays chair. By mojito, I mean nice beer. And by Mexico, I mean my couch <laughs> while I play Baldur's Gate. Our writers are having some fun with us, and, uh, and we're going to miss them. We actually have two staff departures happening this week, um, uh, two of the people who've been uh, very instrumental in helping to make the show. So we are very grateful to them and wish them the best of luck in their future endeavors. Indeed. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Take care.